Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I'm your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you to those places where you have those mastermind meetings and aha moments that can change your trajectory or at least bring you a little bit closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. As I speak with you now, I'm on my laptop in my living room in my sumptuous apartment in beautiful Las Vegas, known to some, especially today, whoo, is the hottest city in America. I, uh, the aquatic facilities are calling my name the moment that I finish this conversation. I was just sitting out there a little bit earlier. It is too hot to even sit outside. Woo, yeah. This is one of the reasons I came to Vegas. Now, speaking of hot, uh, there are discussions as to whether we would consider our economy hot right now. There are some that are saying we're in a massive recession. Everything's falling apart. The markets are crashing. There are those that are saying pivot with the times. There are those that are saying, oh, the money's here. You just got to pick it up. Well, what do you believe? I'm not sure. What I do know is that I myself have a huge interest in non-traditional investing, candidly, because traditional investing bores me. I'll just come out and say it. It just bores me. I, I want to find new and innovative ways to capture the market, to build wealth. And so I love to fuse in at least a few times a year these types of conversations with people who get it. And this happens to be one of them. We are so honored today to have somebody who I've actually wanted to have on the show for a while. His name is Dan Thompson. He's a seasoned financial advisor and business owner with almost four decades of experience. He started as a stockbroker in 86. And after witnessing the 2001 stock market crash, he saw that we need more safer and predictable investment strategies. There's more to this story. And I'm going to let him tell you in just a second. But what I want you to look out for in this conversation with Dan is what's called the ultimate cash flow, which we're going to ask him about. And also, I'll mention right now his website, which is wisemoneytools.com. We'll come back to that at the end, but I just want to put that out there right now. So those of you who are multiple tab multitaskers can read about him while you hear about him. But let's get to the hear about him first and bring him in. Dan Thompson, come on to win weather is fine. Hey, how you doing? Good to be with you today. And it's hot here too. And I'm heading to the lake this afternoon myself. Where's here? Boise, Idaho. Oh, yes, yes. I absolutely. So let's kind of jump in before we do, because you gave us a few points and I kind of touched on a couple of them that you gave me in the green room that you want to make sure we cover. And you're so much more an expert on this stuff than I am. So I'm going to kind of follow your outline if that's okay. But before we do that, uh, I read off a piece of your official bio. It's very impressive. I'm not even sure I'm worthy to be in your presence. Uh, that's how impressive it is. <laughs> and this is my show. But let's have you tell us in your own words. Tell us a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Oh, well, thank, thank, thank you. I, um, I'm honored to be in your presence as well. You know, when I was 15 years old, I was in the back seat of a car with my dad and and he had a buddy. My dad, unfortunately, just never really made a lot of money. He struggled paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. But this guy that he was with um, said that he had made $30,000 that month in the stock market. And I'm 15 years old. I work for a landscaper. I'm putting in sod and sprinklers every day for $2.50 an hour. I quickly calculated, wow, that's like six years of work for me. And he did it in 30 days. And literally from that moment on, I said, somehow, some way I got to be a stockbroker. And uh, that's where I set my sights. And I finally 
Um, I started going around to brokerage firms in my early 20s, finally got one who gave me a series of tests and aptitude and all kinds of stuff. And, and they gave me a shot. And uh, I was forever grateful for that. But after about 18 months of being in the brokerage world, I realized I can't, I can't be governed. <laughs> I don't want yeah. somebody telling me what I can and can't do and, and what I should sell. And, you know, I was supposed to be in this independent advisor and I would, you know, do my research, come up with the ideas and then go to my manager and he'd say, oh, that's okay, but we want you to sell this. And it just got really frustrating. So I ended up uh -huh. leaving the big brokerage box houses. After about 18 months, I opened up my own offices. I had five offices. I had 60 advisors um, all over the state of Idaho. And then after the dot-com boom and bust, I just came to the realization, you can't do this traditional financial planning stuff, you know, thinking that just getting a 401k and buying mutual funds and riding the market up and down is, is the answer to your financial questions. And so I, uh, I just kind of went on the hunt and spent uh, about a year just looking at everything and kind of came across a few things that I liked. And since then, we've just built upon them. And I think it's just gotten better and better. Yeah, that, and you know, as I said, uh, I never really understood traditional investing. I mean, I have some, uh, you know, those types of uh, simple plans and 401ks. I have all that stuff and uh, I need it explained to me every time because it's just not something that my brain connects with. I don't have a mathematical mind. I don't have that level of analysis. Uh, what I understand in terms of making money is investing in entrepreneurship and and placing my bets on things that are going to return on investment, uh, launching products and services that are going to succeed and how to optimize that. And then having the cash to do with from there. I mean, I, I've heard of things like IRAs and stuff like that. And I have some of that stuff. Uh, but I, I got to tell you candidly, it's not a big part of my life. And I don't have a whole ton of money in that stuff because it just doesn't interest me. What interests me right now is doubling down on reinvesting in my business. We're in a new growth phase right now and using that to develop a new way of wealth creation uh, using some non-traditional investing strategies. Uh, before we get into that though, uh, just so we can set a frame for our conversation, in this day and age with everything that's going on and there are different views on it, what are some of the major struggles that you're seeing in the financial lives of your clients? And what is it that you do that helps them? Well, I think one of the biggest things that people don't really pay much attention to until you might get into those really, really high tax brackets, but but it's just taxes as as a whole. You know, taxes are the biggest bill that any of us will ever pay, but right. yet we don't do much tax planning. And oftentimes people think tax deferral, like putting your money in a 401k or an IRA, that that's tax planning. Well, actually, that's just tax postponement. Tax planning, yeah. in my opinion, is when you can either reduce it significantly or better eliminate it so that your income that's coming in is is tax free. The how you pass your estate on to your family at some point is also tax free. That to me is tax planning. And so we, we started focusing on that, trying to, you know, first, where do you put your money where it could potentially never be taxed again? And you know, the good and the bad and the ugly of it is we found that the the best place to store your capital is in a high cash value life insurance policy, not designed for death benefit, but designed for cash value. And then you leverage that policy into businesses, into investments, into other um, uh, other strategies that can give you some additional tax advantages. So we kind of um, put this hub, if you will of the safe money, the guaranteed money, the tax-free money, and then we branch it out from there. We love businesses, and I think you're right on target. Anytime a, you know, a business owner can invest in himself and invest in their business and grow it, those are sometimes the best multiples you can get. You know, Unfortunately, not everybody has a business or wants a business yeah. or is a very good business person, and so we want to find ways that they can um, you know, produce those kinds of results 
with their capital without having to technically be the business owner. Right. And you know how it is with us entrepreneurs. Um, you know, we can go from wondering how we're going to pay our rent to being flushed with cash in the, in the <laughs> blink of an eye and, uh, and, and see people who work for companies and draw paychecks. They actually work in the insane environment that we do. They do actually do work in the same environment, but here's the difference from viewpoint. They see that every two weeks they're going to get a direct deposit that uh, constitutes their paycheck. Uh, what we see is what it takes to make sure the money's there for that paycheck. You're exactly right. Yeah. And it's a big difference in mindset, right? And it's even yeah. in a big difference in how much time and commitment you're going to put toward your, your work because as a business owner, we ultimately get to see the, the fruition of our hard work. Sometimes if you're just the nine to fiver, you can go in there and work and work and work and just be the, the greatest and it doesn't change your paycheck at all. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, uh, I, when I was uh, first came out of college, I got my first real job. Boy, I, I was a whippersnapper. I thought I was going to go in there and uh, I was going to make a huge difference. And just my motivation, my enthusiasm, my innovation were going to um, were going to set me on fire. You know what it got me instead? Constantly reminded of my low place on the organizational charts. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. the, the, the bottom line is they decided that I was there to um, to fit a piece in their puzzle. And, uh, you know, it got it got to the point where it, in, in this day and age, we talk about quiet quitting. Well, I found myself in that situation. I effectively did quiet quit. I got to a point where I realized that putting any extra emotional or whatever energy into this wasn't really worth it because what they were just looking to see is that I fulfilled the uh, bullet points that were listed on my job descriptions. You know what I did? I said, screw this, print out a copy of my job description. Everything I went throughout the day, I asked myself two questions. Is this thing I'm working on right now, fulfilling one of these bullets on this job description? And have I touched all of these bullets lately in the work that I've done? Because they're looking to see how closely I conform to this to determine what size of cost of living, excuse me, raise I get. <laughs> yeah. So, in the so if I want to put my energy into something, might as well start a side hustle, and that's exactly what I did. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. You know, I kind of, uh, I jokingly say I cursed my kids with this entrepreneurial bug, and uh, most of them, um, I've got three sons and two son-in-laws. All of them own their own businesses and uh -huh. some of them are on their third and fourth businesses and have found ways to, to hire out management so that those businesses run even without them. And, uh, and, and uh, man, I envy them because I wish I would have done that in my twenties and thirties instead of, you know, trying to figure out how to make traditional financial planning work. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, when I was, uh, when I was very young, like when I was in college and, uh, you know, the years immediately afterwards, when I had that first job while I was working my way through MBA school, if any you know, people tried to have, uh, like, I, like, I remember, uh, you know, cause my dad's into this type of traditional investing and he actually does very, very well with it. I, I give him credit. Uh, he has figured it out. Um, he actually, generally knows more than his financial advisors and he's made money with it. Like uh, even I can't believe so all the credit in the world, but I, I can distinctly remember, I can't remember what I had for breakfast, but I remember the back and forth of conversations from 30 years ago. It's how my brain's programmed. And I remember uh, coming downstairs one morning while I still lived in their house and him saying, Adam, did you know that if you put your, if you put a thousand dollars into this type of fund, you'll get a 3% return. And I think I, probably rolled my eyes at him and didn't even respond <laughs> because a that just the concept of that bored me b i didn't understand what he was saying remember i said earlier my brain is not programmed to understand that stuff it's right. not designed to handle that type of stuff and c i was my mind was on where am i gonna where am i gonna get this cash flow it's like uh it's like i don't have a thousand dollars to commit right now and i'm not gonna and I'm, I mean, right now, part of the reason I haven't gotten my own place is because I'm taking all of my existing income and reinvesting it into a side hustle that I'm looking to turn into a full-time thing. Like I've put off, you know, the personal freedom of having my own apartment so I can get my business going faster. I'm not nice. going to take a thousand dollar break from that and put it in some fund that I don't even understand. 
but Good I bring you. I bring that up and uh, and again because my dad's been so successful with it and you know being a, an awesome dad he wants me to be successful as well that's what he knows and that's what he shares with me now I think that you know particularly with some of the challenges people have even making ends meet with uh, between inflation and just how lifestyles have changed in general uh, asking them to do traditional financing right now is going to be a real struggle when they say but. But what about my rent? Yes, I think about my rent. I don't care about your IRA. So how do we, what can we do to get through to some folks to help them see that there are other ways to invest and create wealth that can meet them where they are right now and get them on the path? If we can solve that one, this is, this. that's the full value of this interview right here. Well, good. Well, you know what, part of the reason why your dad is probably successful is because he understands it. He's involved. He's He's taken charge. Like you said, he probably knows better than his his advisors. The problem is most people just turn their money over to an advisor, cross their fingers that the markets are going to do well, and they really don't understand what they have. To to me, IRAs, 401ks, that's that's money jail. Um, if it's tied up till you're 59 and a half, you can't get to it. And then all you did was kick the tax can down the road. Um, and like I say, you just hope that the markets worked perfectly during your working life lifespan. Man, that's just a lot of, of a lot of faith. I would rather have you understand business, understand economies, understand how money works, understand leverage, and being able to put all those pieces together. My my latest book I wrote is called The Four Keys to Building Wealth, and really I wrote it so that you could read it in less than ninety minutes. And you have a better understanding of of the way money works and why, you know, uh, why you need compounding, why you need leverage, why you need tax advantages. And when you put it all together, it's it's not that it's not that difficult, and you don't have to get too crazy. But the first place that we always obviously like to look at is just your own personal business. After you either accomplish that and now your business is growing and now you have capital to work with. Uh -huh. Now you want to leverage that into other assets that produce passive income. And in particular, we like tax-free passive income. And then ultimately you want your assets to pay for your liabilities. So I, I, I you know, credit you for not going out and throwing a bunch of money into a house that produces no income for you. While right now you can take that uh -huh. money and get it working for you, build your business, yeah. let that income then ultimately go buy your house and the different liabilities and cars that you might want down the road. But get that money working and generating cash flow, passive income, and you're well on your way. Well, a couple of things about lifestyle here, and this actually kind of segues into my next point, is I don't... I, I, yeah, I was telling you a story a moment ago from something like 25 years ago. Now, once I got my business from side hustle to full-time thing, the next step on my plan was getting apartments. And I did that within 45 days. I was out of there uh, and got my own place. I've lived in apartments ever since. I don't have interest in owning a house for the primary reason as follows. Number one, minimalism and essentialism. I don't need a house. So I'm not going to buy one. It's that simple. I don't need something that big to live in. Uh, as far as my living situation, I have uh, two values. Uh, one of which is that one of which is that if I don't like it, I can just pick up and leave. Apartments give you that. And the other is that if I find myself living in what turns out to be a really crap community where they constantly close their swimming pool down in the middle of summer, well, I moved <laughs> to Las Vegas because. I like when it gets really hot in the summer and the water in the pool is nice and warm. So you can dip in at one o'clock in the morning and, and float while looking at the moon. That's actually on my list of why I want to move to Las Vegas that I wrote years ago. <laughs> and so, exactly. so if you're living in a crap community, it's not giving that. I like to be able to say, well, you know what? My lease is up. I'm not renewing. I'm going to this other place. I'm going to roll the dice with them. So last year I went through that whole process. I'm in a place right now. And, uh, and, uh, you know, this, you know, I live in a smaller apartment because as I said, I don't need, I, I just need something that's big enough for me. And so when my cats get the zoomies, they have places to run and the swimming pool be open 24 hours a day and it actually freaking be open. Give me that and I'm square. <laughs> right. But however, however, I leave myself open. Um, part of this is because I have not yet identified the first lady for my entrepreneurial ventures. 
when uh, when I locate her or she locates me or the universe brings us together or what have you, well, maybe at that point, a house is going to make sense because then we might be talking about getting kids or a pack of dogs or something like that. Because, you know, yeah, because, you know, it's different having dogs uh, in an apartment versus a house. Sure. Oh, yeah. 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 It's also different having dogs when you're um, one person versus when you're part of a unit. Uh, I mean, because dogs, you know, they need to be they need to be walked. They need a lot of social interaction. Whereas the cat, as long as their food bowl is 100 percent full instead of just 90 percent full, they they promise they won't kill you in your sleep. I mean, uh, and, and, and translating practical terms, you don't have to walk a cat um, and your cat really just wants you to come hang out and then they'll and then, you know, they'll cuddle with you uh, and uh, you can play with the wand toy and all that. But they're really just lower maintenance. Um, and I say and I say that with Princess Stella giving me a look of judgment right now. That's right, Stella, you're lower maintenance. <laughs> so, yes, we're, I... so, so, yeah, so where I'm going with this is I think we have some generational stuff happening as well where i remember when i i'm 46 so when i was growing up i was taught all about get a job um get your 401k going uh uh save a million dollars so you can retire and get the 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 gold shack and the watch in fort lauderdale or however the hell you say that none of which exists anymore and uh i think that a lot of that stuff ceased to exist about 20 years ago when i was completing my mba 2003 i had gotten that job that I had full-time while I was going for the full-time MBA. And in the meantime, this is right about when I started the side hustle. I got diagonally promoted in the day job because I decided rather than go find another job, I'm just going to hang out here for another year or so while I get the side hustle up and running. And uh, I remember I was sitting in the cigar shop speaking with a buddy of mine, and he said, you know, it's a good thing you're starting your business. I said, yeah, I agree with you. Because you've been working for that same, same company for what, three years now? You got to get the hell out of there. People are going to look at you and they're going to say, you worked for the same company for three years. What, does nobody want to hire this guy? Is he not ambitious? Is he not trying to grow things? Whereas growing up just 10 years earlier, I had been told that employers look for you to stay, if possible, with one company your entire career because it demonstrates stability and loyalty. So where I'm going with this is, are stability and loyalty necessarily the values we apply to investing? Yeah, and you're exactly right. Generations have changed. I grew up in kind of a similar generation, get one job, stay there your whole life, retire with a pension. Well, suddenly pensions went away and now it's all on you. A million dollar 401k might get you 40,000 a year before taxes. Um, and so people scrimping and saving and putting that money aside every paycheck, you know, it's just sad. But if the 401k and those kinds of things were working, There'd be more people who re retired with more than adequate income. That's and it's a thing. Just the opposite. They're not. They're That's just a thing. I'm not motivated to do it because I don't know anybody other than my dad who is benefiting from it. It's like I, I, I don't have anybody telling me, do traditional investing. This will work out great for you. Nobody. They can't. It's just not, it's just not in my circle. In fact, I've been given the serious advice to cash all cash out my investments and reinvest them in my business. And I've been told I might actually be better off if I do that. I would probably be on that side of the fence too. Wow. You, wow. You would actually, you would actually uh, ask me to seriously consider that because it is a decent sum of money. It would solve all of my immediate problems and it would give me, uh, it would give me a base of uh, a base of available funds so I can make a real go and a few things that I want to initiate. I think I could turn that into real money if I'm focused and I'm smart and I'm able to pivot with changes, which I think I've developed those skills after 20 years as an entrepreneur. But I have actually given thought to going to my financial advisor and just saying, you know, just give me all the money. I don't want to do this anymore. Well, I actually did it myself in, uh, in 94. I, I said, you know what? I think I can do better with this thing um, and build my own businesses. So I cashed all mine out in 94. So I, I, uh, I'm, I, I would be again on that side of the fence. There's now there's some potential ways. And I don't know what kind of dollars you have to work with, but there might be some ways that if you make a couple strategic investments first, you could wipe out any tax liability that might come against taking that withdrawal. On the other hand, if, 
depending on where your income is right now, you may be in the lowest tax bracket you'll ever be in. This might be the best time to uh, to knock out that tax. So you just kind of have to look at, you know, what you can do yeah. for your current, what what that would look like if you took it out. And then maybe you could do some preparatory steps to eliminate the tax anyway. Right, right, right. My uh, my business, as we do this interview, is in the middle of some major pivots. So uh, the next few months are going to be pretty telling in terms of the level of success we have with some stuff we're taking to market and some things we're getting involved in. And based on my projections and how I plan this out, to the best you can plan this stuff out, um, I expect to be financially in a way different position six months from now. So um, I don't, at the same time, I don't want to leap into this decisions, but it is something that's been on my mind. It's like, I don't give a rat's ass about my 401k. I'm not motivated to put money into it other than the, the minimum I'm required to. Uh, so why don't I just take the money and do something else with it? I just have not clearly defined the what else yet. And that's actually yeah. part of why I'm interested in speaking with you. So, uh, you know, you have, and I want now get, want to get into some of your, your curriculum. You mentioned the four keys to building wealth. Could you develop that a little bit further? I know it's part of your book and I encourage everybody to buy your book. Yeah, they're, they're real simple. It's, it's time, compounding, leverage, and tax advantages. Okay. When those, when those, so we all, None of us know how much time we have left, right? So yeah. the sooner we can get started, the better. Compounding is huge. In in our lifetimes, we only get so many compounding periods. And this is what really struck me back in, especially when in 2000, when that first dot-com boom bust happened and people lost 50% of their value and then took 10 years to get back to where they were. Well, that 10 years is lost time, lost compounding, and you never get that back. And so I started calculating what happens if you just lose 10 years of your life here and there, and you do that maybe two or three times during a 60 or 70 year life period. Well, you'd never get anywhere. It's just, it's uh -huh. just, so compounding is critical, but you need to do it in assets that don't have that, that 50, 40, 30, 50% drop off in, you know, in, in months and where you have to yeah. recover for years and years. And so some of the places that we like to, to work with, so again, we like to store the capital in a safe place. We don't have to be in any kind of a hurry. It's there, it's available. Leverage that into things like um, multifamily real estate, equipment leasing, um, a, an option strategy that, per, that protects the downside. So there's several uh -huh. things you can do, but the both the real estate and the equipment equipment leasing come with so many tax advantages that literally you could get yourself set up to where you never pay tax again. And that in and of itself, you think about what people pay in taxes, 20, 50, hundred thousand dollars a year. If you could just get that back into your pocket every year and then it reinvest that, I mean, it's, it just turns into millions of dollars. Yeah. Now I've heard that, if you purchase certain types of life insurance that you can borrow against them to raise business capital. Am I right about that? Oh, that's exactly what we do. Yeah. My first business with my, with my policies personally, I started a home building company. And so I, I literally built, uh, I don't know, we did about $45 million worth of homes using my life insurance as the, as the collateral. And, um, Yes. I mean, businesses do it all the time. Again, I was just explaining when, a, you know, my, one of my sons just bought another business and he did it using his life insurance policy. Yeah. Um, now, just I and I know and there, I know there may be only so much you can say in a public interview and uh, there's and uh, and anything that you say. Uh, has the caveat that it depends on the individual situation. But in general, just to give our people some ter search terms to help them find their way to you, uh, what types of life insurance are we talking about? Is that, it's like a certain classification or a certain variety that allows you to do these borrows? And how do the borrows work? And are there any penalties or fees or anything like that? Yeah, not every you know guy who can sell you insurance knows how to do this. So you got to make sure somebody understands how to design the policies from the start. Um, you can use a, a whole life or a blend of a whole life and what's called an indexed universal life. Yeah. Some, sometimes blending the two makes sense depending on the the person's age. When you borrow on them, typically we like to use outside banks 
who do charge us interest to borrow that. But typically we earn more inside the policy than we're paying in the interest. So we make a little spread there. And then obviously if it's used for a business or an investment purpose, we get to even deduct that interest. So it gets to be very, very inexpensive money. And yeah. then we can use that to leverage into, again, a business, real estate, equipment leasing, and on and on. You know, um, I'm going to bring up, a, I'm going to bring up a point here. Uh, you know, I, you know, going back to when I was like, I think 19 or 20 years old, I had just uh, bought an, a car and, you know, I had my 36 months of payments I was going to have to make on it. And somebody tried to tell me, it wasn't my dad this time, it was somebody else who's trying to explain to me that I should buy three months of CDs and get three months ahead on the car payment so that they all mature right before a car payment is due. And then buy each CD and the amount of what the car payment's going to be because then I'm going to earn $4.33 on the interest. And I said, just please, that's way too much work to make $100 off my car payments. I'm just going to make the freaking payments, okay? <laughs> this, this is stupid. Now, now contrast that, contrast that to what you just said, which is actually kind of a similar thing. It's using one piece of your financial puzzle to amortize and leverage another so that you use one to pay for the other, but you're looking at the margins you're getting between what you get paid and what you paid out, and you're making an increment there. So what I heard is some mixture of um, getting funded from one source to acquire the life insurance and then borrowing against it, and the gap between um, penalties and interest and the amount of money you get out from when you move from one to the other is a profit. Did I get that about right in layman's terms? Yeah, we call it the spread, the difference between the spread. what it's costing money and what you're earning. And a car is a good example because everybody can kind of understand it. It's not the best asset to buy because it's going to go down in value. But I lease. Yeah, well, if yeah, I, 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 I lease. I mean, if, when I buy a car, it's because I'm going to be getting a toy, something that's fun. It's going to be a classic car. It's going to be something like that. In that case, I'm going to want to buy it. And also because I know that that's the only type of vehicle that in my research has even the slight chance of increasing in value. And that's because they, um, they're they using competitions, shows, they're considered collector's items. But unless something either is or it's on its way to being a collector's item, I'm not going to buy it. I'm going to lease it. And in three years, I give them the keys. They say, give me another one. <laughs> yeah. And then it becomes just a part of your cost of living. Yeah. And again, if, you, if you're taking the capital that you would normally put toward a car and just have it start to create passive income for you pretty soon, it can even pay your lease payment. And right. that's really the ultimate goal is to live tax-free with as much enjoyment in life and do whatever you want, whenever you want, because the money coming in isn't something you necessarily have to go work for every day. It's working for you. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and furthermore, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, cause, cause I, I, I was told the whole thing. Why would you want to live in an apartment? Because you're paying all that rent and you're not getting anything. Well, what happens if the house you buy goes in a, I'm just going to come out and say this. I know that uh, you know we're, this is more of a you know a PG type audience. Um, but what if you buy what if you buy a house and the neighborhood that that house is in goes to shit? Then what? What yeah. happened to your big so-called investment? Yeah, See, that's that's another reason why I value portability. If I find myself in a neighborhood that changes, and I don't want to be here anymore. My worst case scenario is I pay an extra month's worth of rent and a breakage fee and get out of there right now. That's my worst case scenario. Sure. With your house, um, I, I've heard stories of people who got job offers uh, that required them to move, and uh, they lost out on the job because they couldn't sell their freaking house. Whereas if they, uh, had, whereas if they hadn't had a house, they could have just paid a fee to break the lease and been out of there that weekend. Right, right. Yeah, and my, my thing with homes is more or less, um, it's the dead equity. Yeah, you know, that you it's not producing income for you. So if you are going to buy a house, to me, you want the least amount of money in it out of pocket. And again, get that money working for you. Let right. it make your house payments. And then even if you had to move, like you just indicated, and you couldn't sell your house, at least your income, your passive income is paying for that house. You still can move maybe rent it out or something like that. But right, I'm, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then then you pay a management company, you pay them a fee, but then you can at least 
at minimum, recoup what your mortgage is going to be by renting it out. I get that too. Um, I, I was also going to say that, uh, you know, if, you know, if I, you know, when I get to a situation where maybe I have a family, I have a spouse or, or, or something in my life changes and actually, uh, actually buying a house makes more sense. What I'm not paying for in my mind is the house itself. I'm paying right. for what the house does for me. No, I'm with you. I, you, I you, 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 you yeah, yeah, and you get you get that little mind shift. It's not about I'm buying a house. I'm going to have a tangible asset. It's going to be about well, I have a woman now, so uh, it's going to make sense if we're living together that we have something that's a bit more spacious because uh, uh, yeah, I need my man cave and she needs something where she controls the absolute rest of it in exchange for letting me ha have the man cave. Hey, I know the rules. So um, yeah, no, you're exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, and yeah. So so in that case. Buying the house is about creating the lifestyle. It's not about buying a house. I mean, and and if there was a better house, I'd just move to another one. I wouldn't care less. Yeah, you said it exactly right. It's a lifestyle choice at that point. You know, and then you get back to the traditional financial planning who wants you to own your house free and clear before you retire. I can't tell you how many nightmare situations I run into almost weekly people trying to figure out how they're going to retire. They maybe have a small pension, social security, and they have 800 or a million dollars sitting in a house that's paid off. That's doing absolutely nothing for them. And I say, well, unfortunately the mistake you made was paying off this house. A million dollars over here could have potentially been producing another 70, 80, hundred thousand dollars in income. And you chose to stick it into sticks and bricks. Yeah traditional financial planner told you that the only way you can retire is to own your house. And unfortunately that's just not true. Okay. Um, are you, do you, do you enjoy two true crime documentaries? You know, I, I enjoy, I don't know about true crime, but there's a show called suits about attorneys and yeah, and I know that show. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I totally like that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I bring it up is, uh, you know, from true crime and, uh, they actually made a movie about this. Um, uh, there's this guy in New Jersey named John List, and uh, he uh, killed off his uh, his mother, his wife, and their three kids, and then went on the lam for 18 years until he was discovered um, as a result of his show on America's Most Wanted. Uh, so <laughs> part of the reason that he killed off his family is because his career had stalled. He was frequently unemployed. He had spent all of his money, all of his mother's money, and uh, they lived way beyond their means in a mansion that they could never afford to begin with. And uh, he killed his family so that he could get what was left of the money and abscond with it to avoid bankruptcy. Oh, wow. uh, because he, and he actually said this when he was interviewed later on after they captured him, he felt it was better for them to die than to be on welfare. Oh my gosh. It would have been, it would have been such a failure and a sin to allow his family to require public assistance, uh, he was doing him a favor by killing him. That's how twisted this guy was. Now, let me get to my point. In this mansion, it turns out that the mansion had a skylight in it uh, that was made with Tiffany glass. Okay. And they did a study of how much, you know, how much money this guy owed, how much money this guy would have needed to live, and how much that skylight was worth. He could have sold the skylight used the funds to pay off all his debts, rebuild his savings, and patch the hole in the roof. Wow. Yeah. So the problem, I mean, this is a guy who prayed to God a lot. And the funny thing is the answer to all of his problems is when he literally looked up. Somehow he missed that. <laughs> he, he, it's either he didn't know or he just wasn't, he was just so caught up in his weird version of religion and he didn't catch that, hey, dude, all I got to do is sell the skylight and I'm good. <laughs> and, that, and, that's, and, that's how, and that's how I think uh, sometimes of buying a house. I mean, you mentioned sticks and bricks. Uh, I mean, are you investing in sticks and bricks or are you investing in the experience? Um, like, for example, sometimes it makes sense for people who have grandchildren to have a house and maybe for them it's because it's a place where all the grandkids can come. Yeah, no question about it. And you, you mentioned dogs and cats. I mean, one of yeah. the reasons why I have a house on a couple acres is because I got a couple dogs. Yeah. And oh, they, they got to run. You, you need room for those dogs. And 
uh, along the same lines, I got 18 grandkids. <laughs> yeah, and, and, uh, uh, they they need to run too, and and, and you so, and you need them to go out and play sometimes. Hey, you and I both know what we're talking about. Yep, yep. But it is, but it is totally every time I can refinance it and pull out cash, I do, and I get that cash working somewhere else. And now I've got I've got more cash flow than I need to make a house payment. Yeah. Well, see, see, see that now it's you know, because you're looking at a little bit different. It's not about how fast can I pay this off and have a quote unquote tangible asset It's how can I use this as part of my monetization strategy? That's what I'm picking up. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And if you're not monetizing the house, then I mean, what do you have the house for? I mean, I think it was Grant Cardone or somebody of his type who said that, yeah, it's OK to buy a house, uh, but you're not going to live in it. You're going to monetize the house and live somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, speaking of that, since I have you here, you know, I've been hearing some stories. A lot of part of the reason we have all these housing shortages is so many folks have bought up houses because they've been taught that that uh, rental properties are the hottest and most sustainable uh, wealth building strategy. And then you have these folks who become a Airbnb entrepreneurs who buy up houses, they can rent them out under their Airbnbs. And I'm hearing that we may be seeing some changes now, particularly with some things that are happening with the Airbnb company itself, that we may soon actually be seeing a housing glut where uh, people are going to be forced by circumstances to dump their houses. And next thing you know, we're going to go from housing shortages to more inventory than people can move. If that happens, should people just say, oh, let me pick up some houses on the cheap? And uh, if they do, what else should they be keeping in mind so they're smart about this? Yeah, well, it it always seems practical to take advantage of those opportunities. I, in particular, don't necessarily like uh, single-family homes, and I think Airbnb is is um, getting over overused. <laughs> There's getting to be a gluttony of of homes out there, and so it's yeah. getting more and more competition. It's tougher and tougher in the real estate market for passive income. I like I like multifamily, and in particular, at least thirty-five units or more. And the reason why is because at 35 units, you can afford to give up one unit for a manager. So you have an on-site manager, so they're not calling you every time there's a problem. I like uh, that. 70, 100, 150 units are, are optimal. And you know what? You can make it through tough times. And even if even if on paper, your property's down in value, um, in those markets, rents tend to stay up. They even tend to increase. So they do. Yeah. My rent went up. I mean, uh, yeah. And, you know, you bring up another thing. Um, uh, and this is what I did last, last year when I was searching for new, a new apartment. Uh, when I did tours of various complexes, uh, I would uh, I would ask the person I was meeting with, uh, the represent, you know, the property manager or the person working in the office or whatever. Uh, one of my questions then would be, do you live on this property? Right. And if they said no, I cut it short. I was polite about it, and I didn't say that was the reason why. But uh, I found that at that point, I pretty much had all the information I needed because <laughs> yeah. it's real simple when it comes, to, particularly when it comes to these multi-unit stored, you know, you know, these multi-unit properties, thirty-five or more. Um, is and again, I'm going to say this very bluntly: if uh, when it comes to the management staff, if they themselves don't have to put up with the crap the residents do, they don't care. Yeah. And that was a situation I was in with the last place I lived. These people knocked off at five o'clock um, and went back to their home. So they couldn't care less if their residents were were suffering in Las Vegas summer because they were coming up with ridiculous excuses to keep their perfectly functioning pool closed for bullshit reasons. Yes. But yes. but if you but if but if you're working for but if you're working this property and you live there, you have a vested interest in that damn swimming pool being open because you want to use it too. Well, not only that, but that now is your job. That that specific couple or person or whomever who lives there as the manager, that is their first and foremost job is to keep everybody in the residency um, happy, keep things moving, uh -huh. get, it, get uh, subs out there or air conditioning or whatever that case may be. But anything under 35, you're, you're probably going to be talking with the owner and that's going to be tough. Yeah. And the reason I took this segue in what you were saying is – so important because uh, when it comes to um, rentable, you know, rentable housing properties or rentable residential properties, this is this goes into resident retention and turnover. 
I mean, I, I, I walked out on a place because I spent seven years uh, dealing with their incompetence or just unwillingness to provide us our goddamn swimming pool. You can, can you tell us a little bit upset about this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do talk about swimming pools quite a bit. <laughs> well, remember, remember, it was on my list of why I want to move to Las Vegas. And they weren't yeah. giving me what I was paying for. And, uh, and, and the bottom line is the place where I'm living now, uh, I've been in that thing 10 times in the past 72 hours. It's open. So I'm happy. So, uh, you know, so when it comes to residential properties, it's great to say, oh, well, I'll buy some junk property and then I'll rent it out. But you're going to be spending a lot of time finding new tenants if they're not satisfied and feel like they're getting their money's worth for their rent. Yeah. Well, so you got, so you got to think about that, too. It's not about just trying to get the cheapest thing possible and get the most rent out of it possible by uh, slapping a fresh coat of paint, and maybe some new kitchen tiles. You got to be thinking about what is going to make them want to stay there. I mean, my, one of my key values is portability. Uh, the ability to say, hey, I don't like here anymore. I'm going to just break my lease and leave. But there's also a side of that that, hey, as long as things are going, you know, baseline okay, I'm good with this. Yeah. Well, you know, I've got a few um, single family homes, but I built them. So I all, I know that the area is nice. I know it's, it, they're more, I, I'll call them, um, executive homes, you know, more yeah. higher in. And I don't mind those as much. Well, first of all, they're brand new, so I don't have to worry too much about maintenance. But um, those are those are okay. I would never go buy a piece of junk and think I'm going to rent it and everything's going to be great. I, I would rather pay up to have a, a nicer piece of property that people will want to be there into uh just get a get something that maybe is really really affordable because that could get you in trouble yeah yeah uh like you know you can go to depressed neighborhoods and you can find houses for sale for fourteen thousand dollars and think oh well, i'll get a tenant in there a thousand dollars a month i'll own this thing in a year no you won't right uh you, you'll, you'll you'll be lucky if halfway through that person's rent they don't turn you in and your property ends up getting condemned Exactly. I mean, uh, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be intelligent about this. I mean, if there's a house for sale for fourteen thousand uh, dollars, one of the questions we need to ask is, should we maybe just tear it down? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I, I, I can give you an example. Uh, my my paternal grandparents bought this beautiful house in this little town in southwestern Pennsylvania. It was um, it was constructed, I believe, uh, in nineteen oh six, I believe. Uh, and it had, um, it had recessed French doors, uh, stained glass, secret passageways, all the, th and, uh, all the cool stuff that houses built back then had. And when my grandma died and the family sold it off, I was very sad because I was hoping my parents would buy it and would move there. It was such a cool house. Well, about three owners later, it had gotten to the point where the value of the house dropped from $98,000 to $11,000. And that was because uh, the toilet crashed through the ceiling and landed in the kitchen. And there was a big hole there and there was mold everywhere. Now, huh. they brought it. Now, somebody grabbed that house. I think they ended up paying like $8,000 for this house. And they uh, not exactly gutted it because some of the original woodwork is still there. Actually, some of the original carpeting is still there. They fixed those recessed French doors so they actually work. They put in modern uh, electricity. They built a modern laundry room and all other kinds of stuff. But when they sold it, they sold it for something like $180,000. So it's possible, but look how much money they put into it to make that a nice house again. Right, right. That's an and uh, and that's in a and that's in a, a neighborhood where the average rent is eight hundred and sixty dollars. I actually have this up on my screen right now. That's how I know all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. So it's, so somebody might have come and said, "Well, there's this old house and there's a hole in the ceiling, but whatever. We'll get somebody to pay us a thousand dollars. Yeah, they'll stay there a month, and then you got another tenant situation on your hands. Because I'm thinking if I have rental properties. That I'm renting to people, I'd like them to stay for five or ten years. Right. Sure. I mean, that just seems logical to me. And if I have a 35 unit place, I like the idea that uh, one of those would be uh, that one of those. I'd even be able to sacrifice two of them to have two different managers, just to know that there's somebody who lives there 
has a vested, vested interest in things working and will be available pretty much any time. Uh-huh. I like those things. I like those things a lot. I would let them live there for free if I could get that in return. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So um, in the time we have left here, uh, what, I, what I wanted to ask is, let's say you have someone like me, um, you know, I have some money in traditional investments and I disclose to you that I've been thinking about cashing out because candidly, it just bores me. I don't care. And there's not a whole lot of money there anyway. Uh, I'm in a situation where uh, my business is in transition and flux. Uh, we have a new thing that uh, we've launched uh, within the past two years, our launch your podcast fast system, which is doing very well. Uh, and, uh, but it's just now getting to the point where it's moved into true profitability um, beyond, uh, you know, beyond reinvestment with a little bit of profit on the top. We're in true profitability now. Uh, so someone like me who thinks that uh, within about six months, based on reality, that we're going to be in a position to make some major moves and reconstruct our wealth situation, knowing that we're in our mid-40s, uh, we don't have a lot saved up right now. We're not actually worried about it, but we know we're supposed to be. And we also know, and we also know that there's a way that we can do this right and in the end come out much better than traditional investing. What would you recommend my first steps to be other than buy your book, which I'm going to tell people where to get in just a moment? Well, you know, the truth is, I, I if I have one regret looking back is I didn't invest enough in myself or another way to say it in into my business, I I would make money. But then I'd kind of hoard it thinking, oh, what if I don't make any more? And I think that's a that's a horrible thing to do. If you believe in your business and your product, I think you should take almost everything you make and reinvest it right back into yourself and into your building and growth. Then eventually you can start playing around with some of the things that we do as you take in profit. Now you can start building up policies and then use those policies to either buy more businesses or to start creating passive income through, you know, multifamily or equipment leasing or the different things. But in the, in the first run of this thing, I would be saying, yeah, take your capital, get it invested in yourself. You know, I was one of, I don't know, one of the first, but I started doing YouTube almost nine years ago when it wasn't really, you know, that popular. And uh -huh. I've, I've put out a video a week, you know, for years now. And I wish I would have understood the power of that marketing, even just even four or five years ago, and just plowed as many dollars back into YouTube marketing. And just to get my, you know, because look, I, this is maybe sounds, I don't know, a little too uh, whatever, but I know we just blow away most financial advisors out there. More yeah. people need to know about us. And I mad at myself that I didn't plow more money into building my brand and my name. And I just let it happen naturally. I've, I've, I still haven't put any money into YouTube ads and I've got a fairly substantial following and a, and a huge book of business. Yeah. But I could have done so much more for so many more people. So when I think of when I'm listening to you and you've got an opportunity to grow and to put out this amazing product, I would say your money is much better off in your hands producing a, a, a business that's going to create even more um, income and cash flow for you than sitting in an IRA, you know, hoping it's going to make 10%. Right, right. But that's scary too, because if I pull it out, I got nothing saved. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, that, I mean, that is, I mean, uh, that is truly pushing your stacks all in at that point. Well, you've heard the, you've heard the old uh, burn the ship story. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Burn the boats because that way you can't retreat. That's what happened to me. I mean, when I took my first, you know, Series 7, the stockbroker exam, I had nowhere to go. I uh -huh. had no job to fall back on. No family was going to help me. And so as a result, no one outworked me. I'm, I'm in the office till 8, 9, 10 o'clock uh -huh. at night, opening the phone book, calling anybody who would talk to me. So the burden of ships isn't isn't all that bad in the end if you believe in your product and you believe in yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
you know, uh, you know, I'm in that I'm in a place right now is where is we're having this conversation where uh, we are taking what we call the reach system and we're moving it even beyond podcasting. And I have been. And not only that, but we've uh, had an uptick in our business with the Launch Your Podcast Fast program. Right now, we have more podcast launches in development simultaneously than we've had in the two and a half years the program has existed. Now, I'm not thinking, okay, we're capacity. Now I'm thinking, let's double down because now <laughs> we're going to go into true leverage. There you go. And that's, and that's a mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs say. It's like, okay, well, I'm at capacity. I can coast here on the marketing for a few weeks. And uh, oh. I actually, and I actually, and because I fall into this pattern myself, I wrote this on a sheet of paper and I taped it, literally taped it to my wall using scotch tape, of course, because I rent, remember? Uh, <laughs> so I can see it when I'm sitting on my purple couch in my living room using my laptop on this uh, coffee table that has like the shelf that lifts up. So I use it also as a desk where uh where it says you're at capacity hit the gas there you go to remind myself this is not when we get complacent this is when we go hard i like and, it. and if and if that and if that means uh and if that means i'm temporarily overwhelmed with work as we make that shift well you know what it's work that i love and what i have to remember is this isn't that in the past when i would take on projects i hated for cash flow and wear myself out I like what I'm doing. Well, so you know, that would be that would be my advice. If you're in hustle and grind mode, find something you're going to enjoy hustle and grinding. So you can stay at the office till eight o'clock. You can you can uh, you can bang through on a on a on a Saturday night. You can uh, you can pull an all nighter because you just don't want to stop working. Because when you got oh, that fuel, you're unstoppable. And you're exactly right. I mean, that's where I'm at. Even I'm an old guy, but I love what I do. I love speaking, getting to events. I mean, just in the past two weeks, Dallas, St. Louis, San Diego, Phoenix twice. I mean, I'll go anywhere to speak to any group that wants to, to, you know, so I love speaking to, um, you know, high net worth, doctors, dentists, you know, things where they really have these tax liabilities. And there's nothing better than a guy who comes to me and says, man, I've been paying 500,000 a year in taxes and I can wipe that out. I mean, that, I, I can't, I can't get enough of that. So I'm, yeah. I'm just as, as motivated as I was when I was in my twenties. Absolutely. So we are near the top of the hour. So let me show our listeners how you can get more of this. Now, this conversation may have seemed like it meandered a little bit. It was a bit tangential, but as our listeners know, they're invited to sit in on, on a real mastermind conversation. And in real mastermind conversations, you have pivots, you have tangents, you have things that go left and things that go right. You have subjects that abruptly bounce around. And I, I'm glad you listened to it, everybody, because we were setting the framework to help you get the mindsets that will drive you to do what you should do next. And in Dan's cases, I have, I have a couple recommendations for you. So again, his name is Dan Thompson, uh, and his, the name of his book is The Four Keys to Building Wealth. So that's The Four Keys to Building Wealth by Dan Thompson. It's on most major online retailers Go pick it up. I'm going to grab it myself. There's a Kindle and a paperback version. Uh, he said it takes you about 90 minutes to read if you caught him saying that earlier. So with, uh, for me, that's a one cigar read. I like it. I also would encourage you to visit his website, which is wisemoneytools.com. That's wisemoneytools.com. Now, I'm not going to say everything you find on the website because I don't, because in case he has it redesigned, um, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, make this dated but uh there's the uh, concept of infinite banking which we touched on leverage life insurance which we touched on real estate which we touched on tax strategies which we touched on uh high net worth financial tools we touched on all this stuff we gave you a little bit of a potpourri and whatever and what dan and i discussed really intrigued you and made you say i want more of this go to his website and you can take a deep dive on any of those topics and then what i want you to do is scroll to the very bottom and look in the footer of his website and find the YouTube icon. That YouTube video, that YouTube channel he just mentioned, I have it open on one of my tabs right now. And this is, the, his YouTube channel is a seminar, a seminar on this stuff. Go check it out. 
So again, uh, this all starts when you go to wisemoneytools.com. You'll find the rest of it. And make sure you get that book, The Four Keys to Building Wealth. And with that, Dan Thompson, thank you so much for being here today. It has been an honor and, oh, believe me, an education. Oh, well, thanks so much. I, I enjoyed it as well. Thanks for having me. All you listeners, thanks for joining in. And uh, I hope to catch up to you another time soon. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.